0: Have you thought about what you can do to create the best place to work? Today, the art and science of creating an extraordinary workplace. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 181. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. This is a weekly show to help leaders improve their communication, strategy, coaching, productivity, and personal mastery. And I'm so glad that you have tuned in today because I have a guest with me that is someone who's got some great perspective on many of the things that are so important to be able to create a workplace that is truly extraordinary. And that is something that I know so many of us as leaders think about and want to take good action on in order to maximize the effectiveness of our organizations, but also to maximize. The enjoyment of the people that work there. And my guest today is Dr. Ron Friedman. Ron is an award-winning psychologist and the founder of Ignite 80, a consulting firm that helps smart leaders build extraordinary workplaces. He's an expert on human motivation, and he's the author of the new book, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron, welcome to Coaching for Leaders.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. Great to be here.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you. and before we started recor- uh, recording the interview today, uh, you had mentioned to me that you know that y- it was interesting how you got started in doing this work and thinking about extraordinary workplaces. And uh, I'm, I'm just really interested to know more about that. How did you get involved with this and, and start thinking about the book and, uh, and get fascinated by this topic?
1: You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how I stumbled on the idea by accident and it was really my experience in being in the corporate world that led me to want to write a book about how we can build better workplaces. Before I got to the corporate world, I spent many years as a college professor. I studied human motivation in the lab, I taught at colleges and universities and my goal had always been to get a full-time position as a professor and when I reached that goal, I discovered I wasn't satisfied with it. I began itching for a new challenge. And, um, you know, part of the reason I got into academics is because I enjoyed learning new things. And as it turns out, when you're a full-time professor, you just kind of teach the same class over and over again. Mm. You're not really learning, uh, at least unless, you know, you're, you're devoting 90% of your time to, to new research. And that's not the position I had. So I decided I wanted to go into the corporate world. So I got hired as a pollster. And my job was to measure public opinion, to see what people thought and what organizations can do to change those opinions. And it was in that experience of being in the modern workplace that I came to realize that there's just a massive divide between things that I took for granted as a professor uh, in terms of what are the factors that drive people to be more motivated, more creative, more engaged, and what organizations actually do. And it's not for a lack of interest. Every business owner and every client I've had has always been really interested in creating a great workplace. The trouble is that you know if you're a busy executive, you don't have time to pore over academic journals, and even if you did, they're kind of written in jargon. Um, so I spent some time writing a book, taking all of the information that I knew that psychologists had gathered over the last few decades, curated it. Distilled it and tried to translate it in a way that makes it actionable. Whether you're a high-powered CEO or really just an intern who's about to enter the workplace, and summarize all the findings on how we can all work more effectively. And looking at what science has uncovered.
0: Fascinating, and and I think that um, you know you and I have done some of the same reading, and I know we follow some of the same people uh, who've who've done a lot of the thinking on human motivation. And I'm curious, what's maybe something that you found in your work, especially going back into the corporate world, that, that was really a disconnect that you know we figured out from the research, but that a lot of leaders and organizations just aren't aren't aware of or aren't familiar with?
1: Oh, man, Dave, we could spend a long time talking about it. So <laughs> <give you just laughs> There's a loaded few question. Examples. Huh? Yeah, right. Um, so it's everything from the way that companies hire to the way that managers motivate to the basic layout and design of the modern workplace. All of it uh, can learn from some of the science. So just let's talk about hiring, for example. Um, In most organizations, hiring managers rely in large part on the in-person interview to make the determination of whether or not someone is going to be a good fit. As it turns out, in-person interviews are a a dreadful method of predicting whether or not someone's going to be a good fit for a number of reasons. For one, It's because when you are conducting an in-person interview, you're measuring someone's ability to think on the spot and answer quickly. And that is valuable information if you're hiring, for example, a salesperson, someone who's good interpersonally. But oftentimes the positions we're hiring for don't involve that skill set. So we end up hiring people who end up being charismatic or maybe answering questions a little bit better than others and not necessarily the ones who are the most qualified. Beyond that, if you look at the studies, it turns out that over 80% of people lie at some point during the in-person interview. Oh, wow. Yeah, they realize that if I tell this hiring manager I don't have that skill set that they're obviously interested in, I'm going to be out. So it's at that point in the interview that it becomes um, profitable from the perspective of the interviewee to lie because otherwise they're going to be knocked out. So we place people in these positions where they're essentially rewarded for lying. And then finally, even if the information that you got was 100% accurate and 100% job relevant, there would still be problems with the in-person interview. And it's because we have all of these unconscious biases that influence the way that we view candidates. So for example, there are studies showing that if someone's good looking, we tend to view them as being more competent than they actually are. If someone's taller, we view them as having more leadership ability than they actually do. And if someone speaks with a deeper voice, we view them as being more trustworthy than they actually are. None of those things are true, but they impact the questions we then ask as a result of our impression. So for example, if I view you as being more extroverted than um, you perhaps are, then I might say, hey, can you tell me a little bit about your experience leading groups? But if my initial impression tells me that you're introverted, I might ask you something along the lines of, hey, are you comfortable in front of large audiences Um, Now, on the surface, it might appear as both of those questions are asking the same things, but the subtle shift in the the framing of the questions then leads you to answer in a way that confirms my initial impressions. So Mm -hmm. what I argue in The Best Place to Work is rather than simply um, conducting an in-person interview and then making a determination is create a job-relevant audition. So now, instead of measuring how people answer you on the in-person interview, Create an audition where, for example, if you're about to hire a salesperson, have them come in and sell you on your company. Or if you're about to hire a web designer, have them design an online landing page for you so you can measure their performance on the actual task they'll be doing, not just the way they're answering your questions.
0: Oh, I like it. I like it. And and I'm also conscious of the fact that there's probably someone driving somewhere Banging their head against the steering wheel, who's on their way to sit in on an interview to to uh, to, to talk to someone, and so uh, for that person who who maybe is in the organization or maybe they're even on a team of people that are conducting an interview, what's something that you could do even within an interview or some of that traditional model that would help to get beyond some of those biases that we may bring or those those things that we see that aren't really there?
1: Well, you know, to the extent that you're having an interview and you haven't created that sort of blind audition. Um, that's obviously the better approach is that way you're judging the person on their work uh, credentials rather than your impression of who that person is. So if you have um, skipped that step, if you haven't created that audition and you're about to uh, be part of an interview, um, one good idea is to standardize your questions. In other words, write down your questions in advance so that you're asking each candidate the same questions in the same order rather than simply Um, allowing your biases to creep in, so standardizing your questions is valuable. The other thing is to focus on behaviors rather than attitudes. So don't just ask, hey, um, you know, what's your uh, management, uh, what's your approach to managing people? Ask them specific behavioral questions, so say something like, you know, suppose you're encountering a situation where you have two colleagues who aren't getting along. What three things would you do to remedy that situation? Um, And if you're by asking those behavioral questions, both future focused and past focused, so you can ask a question around how did you handle a particular situation in the past? Those behavioral questions tend to be far better predictors of how someone will fit into your organization, how they'll perform once they're there, as opposed to simply asking broader attitude questions around, you know, what's your perspective? It's very easy to answer those questions. It's a lot harder to get specifics on how you'll behave.
0: I love it. That's great advice, Ron. And you know when I um when I first picked up your book and I saw the title um the thing that popped into my mind was and I'm sure you've read these you know those articles you see once a year um and I know there's a publication that does one regularly of like the 50 best places to work or the 100 best places to work and um and anytime I've read those articles it seems like a lot of the focus is on you know, the cool food in the cafeteria and the yoga that's offered to employees um, on site and the on site gyms and healthcare benefits. And, you know, I'm curious are those things central to a great workplace? Does the research show that? And, and if so, how does a small and medium sized business that doesn't necessarily have that kind of access to those, that, that kind of capital to do that, keep up with that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, that's, that's how I start the book is asking what do you do when you don't have Google's budget? Because if you look at the way that Google operates, it sounds like a, a fantasy, frankly, it sounds like going on a vacation. We've got access to volleyball courts with real sand. <laughs> You've got cafeterias serving you 24 seven with gourmet food. Um, there's access to swimming pools, all these wonderful, delightful things. And I think that those Amenities can be valuable to the extent that they position people to perform their job more effectively. So to the extent that I have, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to be eating for lunch. That enables me to better focus on my work during the morning. Um, and I'm not as hungry. My, my energy level isn't it's dipping to the, to the extent that it would be if I um, don't have time to go grab lunch. So those things are, are nice, but I don't think that they are the hallmarks of a great place to work. Um, I think they are very good as a tool of attracting some very talented people to your company. What they won't do is keep those people engaged once they arrive. And ultimately, what is what underlies a great place to work isn't access to perks, but rather experiences that are psychologically fulfilling. And we all have the same basic human psychological needs, and those are the needs for competence, so feeling like we're good at the work that we're doing and being able to grow our competence on the job. Two is feeling connected to the people around us, so in other words, being recognized and valued and feeling like we have meaningful relationships with our colleagues. And then the third thing is feeling like we have autonomy and choice in the way that we go about approaching our work. So any company can create experiences that are psychologically fulfilling. And in, in The Best Place to Work, I talk about what are the specific things you can do as a manager, what are the specific things you can do as an employee to have more psychologically fulfilling experiences at work. Because the research is clear, the more that we have these needs fulfilled, the happier, healthier, more productive we are on a daily basis.
0: And it's interesting you didn't mention money in that and of those three things. And I, I think the... The traditional way that a lot of organizations try to quote unquote motivate people is with the financial incentives. Um, I I know there's been a lot of research done on this too. What have you found about the effectiveness of financial incentives? Do, Do they work? Are they helpful? Or are they secondary to those other three things?
1: Well, it's a complicated answer. Clearly, making uh, money is nice, right? We all like making money. I'm with you on that. (laughs) You're with me on that, guys. Absolutely. And I, I also think that being paid a fair Living wage relative to others in our industry in the same position is vital. We we can't have this conversation about having our psychological needs met if people are going into work and feeling like they're getting screwed by mm. three or four or five or ten thousand dollars relative to another job that they could get because that is going to um, undermine their uh, trust in their employer and interfere with the way that they do their, their, their job. So, in fact, there's research showing that if you pay people just a little bit extra, so for example, if I'm in a position that pays $100,000 and my employer gives me 105 dollars or $110, I'm going to be more motivated and more focused and more loyal to my company as a result of that added $5,000. And so from a financial perspective, it makes a great deal of sense to pay people a little bit more than they would get somewhere else. So getting a living wage and, and a respectful wage aside, the impact of money on job satisfaction is incredibly small. And the reason for that is because what determines your satisfaction with your job is the extent to which you have your psychological needs met, not the amount of money that you make. So, for example, Dave, if I were to pay you $500,000 to come into my office and stare at the wall every day, that would not be a very satisfying job. It doesn't matter how much you get paid. It's the experience of are you growing? Are you learning new skills? Do you feel respected by your colleagues? Do you have choice in how you do your job? That's what ultimately defines whether or not you have a satisfying experience. And again, it's something that any organization can um, create. Any organization can create those conditions. That is not an expensive thing to do, and it makes a great deal of business sense to do it because when your employees are more engaged, they tend to be more motivated, more creative, your customers are happier, people turn over less, and it just uh, ultimately benefits the bottom line.
0: You know, Ron, I'm struck by what you've just said and how much it lines up with um, Daniel Pink's research from Drive. And I know you're familiar with it because you quote him in the book that the the importance of paying people fairly and even a little bit above. And if you get there and get that out of the way and get that taken care of, that you really do empower people to to stay loyal and stay connected to the organization. And And I think so often organizations are thinking of like, okay, how can I negotiate the, the you know the right amount that you know we can you know we don't have to give that extra amount or you know we don't have to give the extra bonus and and that a little bit of that investment goes a long way on on how people stay connected and 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 contribute to the organization, doesn't it?
1: And absolutely it's not just about money um it's also about placing people in the situation where they can perform their best work. And that involves a lot of these other factors that we're often not necessarily aware of. So in the book, I talk about the impact of exercise on how well we do our job. And it's one of the more surprising things I found. You know, when we think about exercise, we think about looking good or feeling good. But as it turns out, what the, re- what the research shows is that some of the biggest impact of exercise is how it influences our thinking. When we we exercise regularly, we're, we have to get more blood flowing in the brain, which enables us to focus. It activates the memory regions of the brain, so we're better able to soak in information. And it puts us in a better mood, which is critical if you're looking to have colleagues who collaborate with one another or uh, employees who are connecting with their customers. And there's all of this research showing that organizations that empower their employees by giving them the flexibility to exercise either by taking an extended lunch or by taking out a gym membership near the office, they tend to have employees who feel uh, more connected to the people around them and also are better at time management skills. So it's interesting, even though you're taking off an hour or 45 minutes to go jog, if you're doing that and you feel like you are uh, encouraged to do that by your manager, you're going to end up feeling like you had a more meaningful day as a result.
0: It's interesting to me how many times on our show, Ron, that we've talked about things like sleep and good exercise and even eating well. Um, and those aren't the things that I think a lot of times people expect to hear when they talk about leadership and human motivation and productivity in the workplace. Um, but, it, but it really does make a big difference. And I, and I, I also found it, I thought it was interesting that one of the um, chapters in your book is titled Why the Best Managers Focus on Themselves. I was wondering if you could tell me a little more about that. What is it that the best managers do that that they're looking internally that's helpful?
1: Well, the critical thing to recognize is that company culture isn't defined by the values or the mission or the vision statement. It's ultimately a function of the behaviors of people at the top. And we are born with uh, a psychological propensity to mimic the behaviors of those around us, and we tend to pay more attention at the the people with uh, the highest concentration of power. And so those behaviors end up being mimicked by people in an organization. And so if you're thinking about what is the culture that I'm looking to create as a leader and as a manager, your behavior and your actions can actually play more of a role on influencing that than you might imagine. And in the book I talk about what are the specific things that managers and leaders do to shape organizational cultures and it's often not the things that we think of. So I'll give you some examples. One is what leaders pay attention to and what they ignore. So if as a leader, if you're a a team leader and you keep asking about a particular metric, your team is gonna start really focusing on that metric and all the metrics that you're not asking about those are the ones that people are going to infer are not all that critical. Mm. So what does that mean? So, for example, if you're consistently focused on new business, but you're not necessarily as focused on ongoing projects, the the quality of those ongoing projects is um, potentially going to dip because now your team is going to infer that getting new business is the critical piece. Um, Another example is a a leader's emotional outbursts. So when you get really upset about something, that directs people's attention to say, hey, that's really critical. That's going to be really important for our manager, and so we should focus more on that. Um, And then finally, what the the behaviors that the leader rewards, not necessarily what the leader talks about. So if you have a CEO who consistently says, uh, you know, we we value our employees' work-life balance, but then when an employee works or does a, an overnight or um, works over the weekend and that gets recognized at, at meetings, then people infer from that, that's what's valued in this organization and that's what leads to the creation of a 24-7 culture. So you could talk about work-life balance all you want, but if as a leader, you're rewarding the behavior that, um, that isn't consistent with that, that's what's going to impact your company culture.
0: Ron, before you and I started um, recording today, we were talking, and I think I used the term "learning geek" <laughs> to uh, describe you, and I mean that with all the love I can muster because I would use the same <laughs> I would use the same term for myself. Um, I know you've you've spent years looking at this research, uh, you've thought about it a lot, you care about it deeply. Uh, one thing I'm I'm interested in is after writing this book, because you obviously went into a lot of detail in the book and and looked at tons of the research. What was something that surprised you that you didn't know before you had written the book?
1: Well, I'd have to to talk about the impact of sunlight on our ability to concentrate.
0: Wait, sunlight?
1: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's not what I I expected you to say. It's not something you need to worry about. I'm in Rochester. (laughs) (laughs) It's something I need to think about more clearly. But exposure to daylight influences how satisfied we are with our job and in fact um, there are studies showing you can actually predict how satisfied employees are uh, by the amount of sunlight entering the workspace Oh, wow! yeah and it's because exposure to daylight is healthy for us it it, uh, lifts our mood by getting our body uh, creating more serotonin that puts us in a better mood it gets our body creating more melatonin which enables us to sleep at night and it lowers our blood pressure all of those factors better position you to focus on your job. So you might think sitting near a window is not a positive thing. It might be a source of distraction. But in fact, there's research on telemarketers looking at how people perform when they're seated near a window versus when they're not. And people who are seated near a window tend to make more phone calls and therefore raise more money for their organization.
0: Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. And and you know, it's it, it lines up so well with this... Um, I just finished reading this book called... The Last Child in the Woods by Richard Love, mm-hmm. which is about it, a, an unrelated topic, but perhaps related about kids and how kids do better when they're outside more and mm-hmm. are are just more balanced people and um, and and you know develop their personalities more effectively and and he talks some in that book about just how the, some of the rates of healing in hospitals of people who have good views in <laughs> their their hospital yep. rooms. And it's interesting how much of this comes back to just some of the core things as human beings that we need in order to do a lot of things better.
1: Absolutely. And that's, in fact, I talk about those studies in in this book as well. And and it's what um, I think more managers and organizations need to appreciate is that we evolved as human beings for a completely different time. We evolved evolutionarily for a time when we were outdoors consistently and now we sit indoors all day in front of a computer and that's just not very natural and in fact it's not just being outside or close to a window that's useful for us but in fact all sorts of connections to nature that can be valuable. There's research showing that when we have more plants and flowers in the office, we're in a better mood, we can focus better, our memory improves. Um, even access to things like pictures of the outdoors or even putting an aqua- a, little, my, a little aquarium in the office or a fireplace, all of those are reminders of nature Put us in a in a state that psychologists refer to as soft fascination. So it's this kind of this relaxed psychological state that engages us, but also demands very little of our attention. And we it tends to make us more creative. When you think about uh, where your most creative thoughts come from, it's very rarely when you're sitting in front of a computer. It's often when you're off taking a walk or um, disconnecting from your phone. Frankly, that better positions you to have creative insights. I think by incorporating some of those things in in a way that can frankly be inexpensive and easy, like, for example, if you have a company where you just don't have that much daylight, encouraging your employees to take walking meetings. You know, don't just say, next time you have a meeting, go to an office or reserve a conference room, but take it outside. Go take a half-hour walk. Easy things like that can really transform the way we experience work.
0: Ron, this is great stuff, and I have one more question I have to ask you, um, because uh, when you pick up Ron's book and you get it, you'll see on the front of the cover, there's a quote by David Allen about the book and, and its effectiveness, and on the back, there are quotes by Marshall Goldsmith, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant. So if there were five people I could choose on workplace motivation and human motivation, to have qu- quotes about a book I wrote, <laughs> Ron, boy, those would be the five people on the planet I'd certainly go for first. And so I'm really curious because I, I, one of the things we've talked about in the show before is how you build your network. How do you reach out to people and build your network within your industry? Um, how did you make such great connections with these folks and, and what did you do to build relationships with them?
1: You know, it's uh, it's funny, I I have to say they were all just uh, people who are complete strangers to me, Uh, with the exception of Adam Grant. Adam Grant and I had had one uh, exchange in the past, but uh, people who I didn't know and just wrote a really nice email to and asked them to take a look at the book, and they were all... Um, very kind and responding and and, uh, and gracious in their quotes. And, you know, this is a, a theme that I talk about in the book is, is the value of taking risks and why more managers should encourage their employees to take risks. And I started off with this story in the first chapter about a psychologist by the name of Albert Ellis who is very renowned in the field, someone who um, some people would consider even more influential than Sigmund Freud. And there's a story about him when he was a teenager and how he was desperate to have a date and, and was also at the same time terrified of women. And uh, he really had this problem of how do I get a date with, while being terrified of women? So he decided to do a little experiment where for one month he would go to the Bronx Botanical uh, Gardens, which was near his home, and uh, he committed to any time he saw a woman who was by herself, he would go up to her, and start talking. <laughs> and then within <laughs> one minute, um, it have you know, in some way, have some kind of communication with her. And by the end of this exchange, he would ask her for coffee or, or a date of some kind. And so he did this experiment with 130 women over the course of the month. He got 30 uh, out of the 130. 30 women fled. <laughs> when he said he, they saw him approaching, yeah. 99 women said no, and one woman said yes. And that one woman who said yes uh, eventually did not show up for the date. So by all accounts, that would seem like an, an unmitigated disaster. right? Uh-huh, like that, right. that experiment would seem terrible. Um, but as it turns out, it was a great learning experience for him because he realized that when your attempt rate is high, each individual failure becomes a lot less significant, so he did that hundred women experiment again a year later, and then he got three dates, and he got much, much better at talking to women and talking to strangers and By the end of uh, 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 by the end of this experiment, he considered himself one of the best picker-uppers in America, <laughs> and uh, he ended up writing he marrying I think three or four women writing several books about dating. and all kinds of relationship guides. And I think it's something that we can all learn from, which is that when you're taking risks consistently, you know, taking intelligent risks consistently and using the feedback to improve your performance, that ultimately is the key to learning.
0: I am so glad this came up because I've had people run before who've um, friends or colleagues who've said something like, how did you get Daniel Pink on your show? How did you do that? And, uh, my response is usually, well, I, I just emailed and asked <laughs> right? and, and it is really amazing. I mean, now it's a little, now it's easier because the show has gotten more traction than it did at the beginning, but even at the beginning, um, you know, you'd get a lot of no's, but you always get yeses from, from a certain percentage of people. And it's just, I mean, it's such a, it's such a good lesson you highlight of just the willingness to ask, the willingness to get beyond ourselves and to take some risks and, that if we're willing to do that, that we can really create some great great things for ourselves and for other people.
1: Yeah, and I think this also comes down to uh, uh, making more friends and and having the the guts to to inviting people to coffee or to lunch and just networking. I think um, even if you get a no, oftentimes the person on the receiving end is going to be flattered by the fact that you've asked. So it's a win-win, even though it might seem awkward to you. Uh, to consider it in in those terms. And I, you know, I talk about, in fact, in the book, about how when Donald Trump enters a room with Me- Melania Trump, who is a supermodel wife, we don't see a long line of women who have rejected his overtures. We just see Melania Trump. So people judge you by your successes far more than they judge you by your failures because generally they're not necessarily aware of them. So the fact that I have these five luminaries on my book is wonderful, but you don't get a long list of people who didn't respond to my email. Right? You just get those five <laughs> Good people.
0: Good point. Good point. Well, the book is called The Best Place to Work. Uh, it's on Amazon and all the normal places you would track down a book. Uh, Ron, in addition to that, what's uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you if they're interested in following you and seeing what you're up to and the research you're, uh, you're commenting on?
1: Well, the name of my consulting firm is Ignite 80, Ignite and the number 80. And the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because uh, Gallup research shows that over 80% of employees worldwide are not fully engaged at their jobs. So the mission of Ignite 80 is to help leaders build better organizations by understanding some of the science and figuring out how they can apply it to their company. So if you visit Ignite80.com, you can sign up for updates when I post articles on Harvard Business Review and Fast Company and places like that. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Ron Friedman, which is just my name uh, with the uh, ad at the beginning.
0: And I'll uh, second the Twitter follow. Uh, I've been following Ron on Twitter for a bit, and he's uh, always sharing lots of good stuff, uh, not only that he's doing, but that other people are doing who are thinking about this. And I always uh, really enjoy connecting uh, with people who are doing some great thinking on this, Ron. Uh, Ron, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Dr. Ron Friedman is the author of the book, The Best Place to Work The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. One of the things that Ron's been really intentional about doing with this book is looking at all the research out there, thousands of articles, but then distilled it down into what's the practical actions that you can take from a leadership standpoint that will help you to either create or influence. The kind of workplace that you want. So I would definitely encourage you to check that out. Lots of good information there. And speaking of uh, resources that are out there, uh, you heard us talk about Twitter during the conversation. And, and, you know, already, if you're uh, up on the weekly leadership guide each week on Wednesdays from me, that I am sharing articles and resources in that over email. And as I find them during the week, I'm also sharing those resources on Twitter, plus a bunch of other things. So uh, feel free to connect up with me on Twitter and uh, check out what I'm sharing. If you're a Twitter user, the uh, link for my accounts on all the emails I send and on the website. Um, And by the way, if you find something online that you think is just great to be a resource to our community and other listeners of the show, uh, send it over to me on Twitter. I'd love to check it out and uh, add it in to consider it for either the leadership guide or get it out there. Uh, I'm always looking for great stuff out there. And man, there's so many great things that people are doing and writing and doing videos on and podcasts, and there's just no way to listen to all of them. So feel free to to uh, to send it along on Twitter, and I would love to get connected with you that way. And speaking of getting connected with you, the next Q&A show is next week already, episode 182. The topic is on presentation skills. So if you have a question on how to become a more effective presenter, how to think about strategy during presenting, how to use PowerPoint, you name it. Uh, It's fair game as, as is really a question on any topic. So feel free to send in something, even if it's not related to presentation skills, but that's what Bonnie and I will be tackling next week specifically. And if you have a question, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the best way to get that in and get it considered. And don't worry if you're a little late getting your question in, in the coming days, we'll consider it for the next show. So, I hope you uh, submit a question and look forward to responding to those next week and having uh, Bonnie back to uh, have some good conversation on that. And while you're online, join that weekly leadership guide that I'm delivering to your inbox on Wednesdays. It includes... My thoughts and recommendations on all the resources I mentioned, podcasts, videos, books, things that I'm finding online that I think would be helpful to you. Uh, I try to shoot for a theme each week, um, but it also includes a brief overview and link to the full weekly show notes. So if you're like me and listen on the go, it'll give you a good way to follow up with the links and resources from the show and a big thank you this week to all of the folks who uh, hopped on to the weekly leadership guide this past week. It's a lot of people. Again, <laughs> the list is getting pretty long. So thank you to uh, Kelly Colon, Ken Diemer, Kenny Wheeler, Jay Falconberry, Eric Carlson, Greg Koo, Dominic Jerzyk. I hope I got that close, Dominic. Uh, a long Polish name. I should be better than that. Uh, Griselda Garcia, Chris uh, Christy Roby-Williams, Chris Lichtman, Jamie Sosa, Carlos LaVidia, Michael Abi, George Riddell, Kay Mueller, Esther Tan, Darren Humby, Mike Munoz, Donald Jansen, Elizabeth Sosa, Dave Gittens, Dave Horx, Donald Jansen, Tyson Sands, Kellen Mitchell, Martin Quinn, Daniel Garcia, Shannon Utley, William Edmondson, Max Schubert, Donnelly Atardo. Rachel Boyer, Mark Kranz, Zoe Stanhope, Carl Traval, Jory Langdon. Jory, hope I got that close. Uh, Clint Boyd, Clint Orgel, Wendy Smith Lloyd, Amy Britton, Christian Munch Svensson, Volker Ballader, Bal, Volker, <laughs> email me, tell me if I got that close. Bimel Desai, Bobby Peterson, Hanif Sangi. Noor Saman, Christy Singleton, David DeFord, and Tracy Marquise. Wow. Thanks all of you for joining the weekly leadership guide. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with you online over email on Wednesdays. And just as a reminder, when you join the weekly leadership guide, not only will you get it, but you also get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and summaries for me on the value of each book. You can download it. It's an 11-page reader's guide and a nine-minute video from me on those book recommendations, plus insight on the two books I rely on weekly, including Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I've been knee-deep in all week, (laughs) working on some client projects. Get all of it at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And I hope you have a fabulous week creating a great workplace out there for people and Bonnie and I look forward to talking with you next week. Take care.